right. How are we doing, community of faith? Yeah? That's great. It's a beautiful day out there. Finally, no rain. I think I was starting to get that sad seasonal affective disorder, you know. I thought it's raining again, but so glad that you're here and God's here to meet with us. I'm finishing up this two-week little mini-series that Marco and I are doing together. Uh, We're talking about how you become a believer. He talked about that last week, and I'm going to talk about evidence that you are a believer this week. And so we're, we're looking at this passage that is kind of an unusual passage. In 2 Kings chapter 5, we're talking about Naaman. He was the captain, he was the commander of the Aramean or the Syrian, we know as today Syrian, army. And they were enemies of Israel. And yet this man who is an enemy of Israel, a high commander, very wealthy He comes to Jerusalem and he becomes a believer. And that happens because he had contracted leprosy, which was a death sentence in his day. And so let's kind of review last week just a little bit. Um, A couple of things I think that we realize that in order to become a believer, um, you have to really see the world as it truly is. Although Naaman had all the world could offer, he also had leprosy. His beautiful uniform, his mighty victories could not disguise the fact that he was a walking dead man, which opens his eyes because he realizes ultimately, I don't have control. I thought I had control. I've tried to control my world. I've tried to control things, but he realized that he has no control and the world has no answers. That's one of the big contrasts between biblical wisdom and the wisdom of the world around us. See, the world tells us that my biggest problems happen to me. And if I can just figure out some ways, I could probably solve them. What the Bible teaches is my biggest problem is me. And the world doesn't have any answers to that. Only God has answers to that. It reminded me of a friend of mine, and I've told some of you about him, that, um, you know, he... He said, I've been married twice and I can't figure out how to do this thing because um, what happened has happened is I I would marry this beautiful, amazing, normal woman. Within two years, she would become like a total witch. And he didn't use the word witch, but it rhymed with witch. And, And I was like, oh. And he said, and then I did it again the second time, this beautiful, normal. Within two years, she was a total witch. And I said, well, what's the common denominator there? Me, I have this amazing ability to turn normal women into witches, you know? And when he realized that, he finally could do something about it and he turned his life around. But I'm my own biggest problem. Naaman goes to Jerusalem thinking that he could buy or earn his healing. But you remember the prophet tells him, I don't want your money All I will need you to do is I want you to go and dip in the muddy Jordan River seven times and you'll be healed. And it was so simple that it was offensive to him. I mean, anybody could do that. I mean, I'm expecting, you know, something amazing to happen. I'm going to earn my way. I'm going to make my way. I'm going to, you know, pay you so that you will heal me. And I brought all of these millions of dollars in silver to pay you. 
and, and yet you're telling me to go do this simple thing. And he was storming back to Syria, to Aramea, and uh, he was not going to do it, but his, his faithful servants said to him, they called him Father, 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 if he had asked you to do something hard, wouldn't you have done it? Wouldn't you have done it? Why don't you go do just what he said? And, you know, it so reminds me, next week, we're having Baptism Sunday. And some of you still need to be baptized. Or some of you need to be baptized because you've just come into a relationship with God or you've been thinking about it and you're ready to do it. But I talk to people all the time and they said, well, I'm not doing that. That doesn't make any sense to me. Well, it doesn't make any sense to me either, really. To dip underwater and to come back up. I know it's a story. It's, a, it's, it's saying, you know, buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in a brand new life. But it just seems so simple. It is simple. And yet, if he had asked you to do something hard, you would have done it. But he said, I want you to do this. But it takes our pride out of it. You know, to have to change into those shorts and t-shirt and go out there and dip underwater and not even totally understanding all that we're doing. It just moves our pride totally out of it. I want to encourage you next week. Be like Naaman who went and did it, dipped underwater seven times. It said after the seventh time he came up and his skin was like the skin of a child. It was perfect. And, and, and he's healed. I want you to imagine this, this great warrior and he's covered up in all this amazing armor probably gold and silver looking stuff I mean just amazing looking and he has to go down to the little muddy Jordan River and he has to take off all that beautiful armor and he has to expose to the world his leprosy his and he was vulnerable and he did it and he was healed that's the way God works. It's not the way the world works. He doesn't work the way that we think he's going to work. He says, whosoever will may come. It's a free gift. Salvation is a free gift. We cannot earn it. Marco talked about that all last week. You have to learn that God only gives salvation by grace, and we're all in the same boat. Therefore, Naaman just had to humble himself, simply obey and receive the gift. And so he does that. You see, until we recognize that God already did everything necessary for our salvation, we can't become a believer. If we're still trying to help him out, if we're still trying to get our good to outweigh our bad and you know, help our fellow man and do these things, no, that's not how you enter into the kingdom of God. You do it like a little child. You receive what he has already done on the cross for you. Well, let's jump into this passage. I want to read two verses at the very beginning of the passage that Marco didn't read, and you'll see why in a little bit. And then we'll skip through what he read and go to the end of it, okay? 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. At this time, Aramean or Syrian raiders had invaded the land of Israel And among their captives was a young girl who had been given to Naaman's wife as a maid. One day the girl said to her mistress, I wish my master would go to see the prophet in Samaria. He would heal him 
of his leprosy. So that be, puts, sets the events in motion. And because they're so desperate, because there's no answers, because this is a death sentence, they're willing to try anything. So then we see last week's events where he actually goes, he takes all this silver and, uh, and, and stuff to pay his way. And he gets to the prophet and the prophet tells him to go dip in the Jordan. He's angry. He doesn't want to do it. It's too simple. But then he does it anyway. And he's totally healed. Verse 15. Then Naaman and his entire party went back to find the man of God. They stood before him and Naaman said, Now I know there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. But Elisha replied, as surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept any gifts. And though Naaman urged him to take the gift, Elisha refused. Then Naaman said, all right, but please allow me to load two of my mules with earth from this place. I will take it back home with me. From now on, I will never again offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to any other God except the Lord. However, may the Lord pardon me in this one thing. When the, my master, the king, goes into the temple of the god Rimen to worship there and leans on my arm, may the Lord pardon me when I bow to go in peace, Elisha said. So Naaman started home again. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, my master should not have let this Aramean, this Syrian, get away without accepting any of his gifts. As surely as the Lord lives, I will chase after him and get something from him. So Gehazi set off after Naaman. When Naaman saw Gehazi running after him, he climbed down from his chariot and went to meet him. Is everything all right? Naaman asked. Yes, Gehazi said, but my master has sent me to tell you that two young prophets from the hill country of Ephraim have just arrived. He would like 75 pounds of silver and two sets of clothing to give them. Well, by all means, take twice as much silver, Naaman insisted. So he gave him two sets of clothing, tied up all the money in two bags, sent two of his servants to carry the gifts for Gehazi. But when they arrived at the citadel, Gehazi took the gifts from the servants and sent them in back. Then he went and hid the gifts inside the house. When he went in to his master, Elisha asked him, where have you been, Gehazi? Well, I haven't been anywhere, he replied. But Elisha asked him, don't you realize that I was there in spirit? When Naaman stepped down from his chariot to meet you, is this the time to receive money and clothing, olive groves and vineyards, sheep and cattle and male and female servants? Because you have done this, you and your descendants will suffer from Naaman's leprosy forever. When Gehazi left the room, he was covered with leprosy. His skin was white as snow. Interesting passage, huh? In this passage, we see Naaman receive not only healing, but salvation. Did you notice Naaman found God, even though he had no knowledge of him? But then we see Gehazi, Elisha's assistant. He was always with the prophet. He was the prophet's right-hand man. He saw God work miracles. He saw God move all the time. He heard the words of God through Elisha directly, but he didn't know God. And we'll see that. Because you see, there's going to be real evidence that I have a real relationship with God. For one thing, it changes the way I see the world. After being healed, Naaman says to Elisha, verse 15, 
Now I recognize there is no God in the whole world, only in Israel. Now, the people of that day were polytheistic. They all had many gods. Rimen was one of the gods of, of Syria at that time. Of a, and so, you know, they were really polytheistic. If Naaman had said, I see that God is stronger than my God, your God's stronger than my God, his worldview wouldn't have changed. But that's not what he said, was it? He said, I see there isn't any other God. And Marco talked a little about this last week. It, it changed his whole worldview, the reality that he held in his mind. You know, I think about the United States today, and we can look back and say, oh, what a backward group of people, polytheistic, you know, worshiping the trees and all this stuff. But we have our own idols and gods, don't we? We just make them a little more respectable. We have money. We have my rights. You know, my relationships. Maybe it's sex. Maybe it's just me. You know, the world revolves around me. Until we realize there's only one God. We can never be believers. It's evident that on the way back to Elisha's house, Naaman's been thinking, you know, this is not just a miracle. This changes everything. It's a whole new way of interpreting life and reality. And so he comes back and says, there is no other God but your God. You know, um, I think that to change the way we see the world is so important that it revolves around God and his plans and his ways. But it also, when we become believers, it changes the way I see my possessions. You see that again at the last part of that same verse. He says, so I want <clears throat> please accept this gift from your servant. It's interesting that Naaman's begun to call himself a servant already even though he's the great leader. But he says, accept this gift. And Naaman's already healed. His skin is already clean. So he's not trying to still earn it. He's, it's just gratitude that's welled up in him and he can't help himself. He's just like, <clears throat> I've got a new lease on life. I just wanna, I, I just, come on, I wanna give you this. Seriously, I wanna give you this. But you get it for free, right? And I think one of the signs that someone is experiencing God's grace is they become more generous. Why is that? Well, I think until you know God, money isn't just money. It's the way that we value ourselves. It's the way that we try to have security for ourselves. It's the way that we, you know, view the worth of people. But when you come into relationship with Christ and he gives you everything and you have all that God has, that's what he says, that we inherit with Jesus everything that God has and you start to really realize that, then money just becomes a tool. It becomes a tool to do God's work and to, to be involved with him and the things that he's doing. And it gets really exciting, really, to give it away. Until that, you know, you might be willing to give a little bit away, but not too much because... Might make you feel good to give a little bit, but you give too much, you don't feel very good at all. You know, losing some of your security. But when God's grace becomes your source of security, money becomes that tool that you just, you see it changing the world. But also an evidence that I have a relationship with God, the very center of my life changes. And this next part, it's a little bit confusing, maybe needs a little 
explanation. Naaman tries to give Elisha the money. Elisha says, I will not accept it for any reason. Then Naaman says this kind of strange thing. He says, all right, but please allow me to load two of my mules with earth from this place and I will take it back home with me. From now on, I will never again offer burnt offerings to any other God. However, may the Lord pardon me in this one thing. When my master, the king, goes into the temple of the god Rimmon to worship and leans on my arm, which shows us that he's pretty much second in command in all of Syria, may the Lord pardon me when I bow too. See, Naaman was the king's right hand. The temple of Rimmon was the main temple. The state ceremonies happened there. The king would go in there, and, and he was an older king, and he would have this strong young Naaman on his arm. And so when he tried to bow down, he was helped by Naaman to bow down. But what Naaman's saying is, listen, let me take this the, the, two, two loads of dirt back with me because everything's changed for me. And I love my king and I care about him. And I'm gonna be there with him when he goes to bow in the temple and I'll have to bow down too. But before I do that, I'm gonna take a handful of this dirt and drop it on the floor of the temple so that what I'm really doing is bowing to the God of Israel. And he said, people will know it, they'll see it, and that's okay. But I'll never bow to Rimmon again, only to the God of Israel. And may he pardon me that I'm in that temple, but I'm only bowing to him. You see, when you really understand what God's done for you, you can't help but just, it becomes a change of everything. You can't go back to just the old ways. Everything changes, and you don't care if people notice. But you notice he wasn't looking down on the old king. He, he, he wasn't saying, I'm not going to hang around that king and be friends to him anymore, and you know, because he's dirt now. I see that. No, he, he's saying, I still love this old man. I still care about him, and I care about everything about him. But I'll walk with him, and I'll be with him, but I'm not ever bowing to his God ever again. I've noticed when you really come into relationship with Jesus that he becomes the very center of everything. This humility comes over you. If it's just religion, you know what happens? We just get puffed up. Have you noticed how religion puffs you up? How you compare yourselves to other people? Remember Jesus talked about that. He said there were these two men praying one of them was this sinner. He had been really bad, and he was just on his hands and knees in the temple, and he was hitting his chest going, oh, God, please be merciful to me. I, I'm such a sinner. And then there was this other guy who was a Pharisee, really religious, but didn't know God. And his prayer was, thank you, God. I'm not like that scum over there. You see the difference in attitude. God saying, no, we're all in the same boat. All of us are in the same boat. Religion, if you're trying to earn your way to God and you're trying to be religious, it tends to puff you up and say, well, I'm better than them. Who are you really comparing yourself to? You know, I'm way better than them. I'm way better than most people. Talk to people and they say, yeah, I think I'll get to heaven because, you know, I'm better than most other people. Well, that's not how it works. See, it's a free gift. And when you understand that it's a free gift that you could never earn, could never deserve, it humbles you. I think Naaman had had a Copernican revolution of the soul. What do I mean by that? Copernicus, the scientist in the Middle Ages, he was the one using his, his 
limited telescope, he began to watch how the stars moved and he realized something that no one had ever realized. In fact, it was heresy in his day that the earth revolved around the sun. See, up until that time, they thought the whole universe revolved around the earth. Now, the Catholic Church was pretty upset with them because we are the center of everything. You know, we are God's creation and the whole universe revolves around us. And Copernicus says, I don't think that's right. And he was persecuted for that. But he had had this whole understanding, a revolution. And when you come into relationship with Jesus, suddenly it's this world that is just rotated around you and it's about you. What a tiny story that is. And you realize, no, I'm just a part of the great story. I'm just a tiny part of this great story. I revolve around God's great story. How can I be involved with him? How can I look and see where he's working and, and, and join him? Now, I wish the story ended there, but the story has, to me, a sad ending. But I think it's there for us to learn what it means to have a real encounter with God, showing us the contrast to someone who hasn't had that. So let's look at the evidence. I think I know God, but I don't. We see these in Gehazi, the servant. He lived with Elisha. He knew the word of God, power of God. Remember, Elisha refused to accept any gift from Naaman. His exact words were, as surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept any gifts. And Naaman still urges him, and Elisha still refuses. Now, let me explain. There's nothing wrong with a servant of God accepting an offering. But notice what he says to Gehazi at the end when he reprimands him for asking for that money. He says in verse 26, Gehazi, is this the time to receive money and clothing, olive groves and vineyards, sheep and cattle and male and female servants? You see what's happening. Elisha knows that what just happened is amazing. An enemy of God, a ruler of the people who are enemies of God has just come into relationship with God. And he's gonna go back and share that with his people. And Elisha wants to be sure there's no confusion. This was a free gift. This was available to anybody. This wasn't because he was rich and powerful and he brought a whole bunch of money and so God heard him. Or because he was so good and God heard him. This is available to anybody. This man from another culture, a high sphere of society, he finds God and, and, and he wants Elisha wants him to go back and say, it's salvation by grace. It's free. The last thing you want is for something to come up that would cloud that idea. Elisha, if he had accepted this, remember, there was so much money that Naaman was bringing, he would have been probably one of the five richest guys in Israel. He had got on Forbes list, you know, just by accepting that gift. But he wouldn't do it. Why? Because he was more concerned about Naaman knowing God than about anything else in his life. His main concern was that God would be known. But Gehazi doesn't have that concern. And Gehazi makes up a lie, a really clever lie. Because if he had gone and ran up to Naaman and said, no, my pastor changed his mind. It might have looked a little suspicious. You know, give it all to me. Instead, he comes up with this great story. Hey, um, the, the, these two prophets came in he wasn't expecting and he wants me to get some of it just a little bit of it just 
maybe 75 pounds of silver. I don't know what somebody needs 75 pounds of silver for, but you know, it still sounds like a lot to me. But give me 75 pounds of silver and a couple of changes of clothing. Now this clothing, you realize, was probably some kind of fancy silk that was worth, you know, many, many thousands of dollars. And so he said, sure. Well, in fact, take double. And so he throws double the silver on Gehazi. And Gehazi goes back and he hides it, remember? And God judges him through Elisha. He gets the leprosy that Naaman had. Again, I think the first mark of a person who's religious but doesn't know God, and we've kind of mentioned it a little bit, I feel superior. I feel better than. I'm better than. Look at what Gehazi said in verse 20. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said this, if my master should not have let this Aramean, this Syrian, get away without accepting any gifts. He views the Syrians with disdain. They don't deserve loving treatment. They're not religious like him. They don't serve God like him. They don't deserve that. I'm going to get something out of it. So Gehazi uses people and loves things versus loving people and using things. I know that some of you are involved in like multi-level marketing things. And I think a lot of that, I mean, it's great. But I don't let my staff do that. You know why? I don't want anyone to be confused about why you're having coffee with them. I don't want you to get to the end of it and say, so if you'll sign up and be in my line, you know. I had a pastor acquaintance of mine who was a millionaire and I couldn't figure out, he had a church of about 200 and he was a millionaire, but they were all in his, he had signed them all up in his line, you know, on MLM. And it was like, I feel a little used right now. That's what, that's what, that's how Gehazi would view the world. How can I use this person? What, what, what can I get from this person? Not what can I give to this person? And, and that's the difference in being a believer or not being a believer. It changes your whole perspective. And the sad reality is that God's grace makes you a better person, but religion, religiosity, without the grace of God, it just makes you arrogant, better than. And here's what the Bible says. In the New Testament, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And that word oppose in the original Greek language of the New Testament means he sets himself in battle array against the proud. You don't want that. You don't want God set in battle array against you. And all of this is part of what it means to come into relationship with Christ. We humble ourselves. Some people have said to me, I think God was way too hard on Gehazi. But I want you to think about it for a minute. There are so many broken things in this world. It just seems like the whole world is broken. One of the most annoying is that there are people with horrible souls that are cruel, superficial, disgusting, that have beautiful bodies. Have you noticed that? I mean, ladies, you probably swiped right on one of those at some point or another, you know? And it's like, oh my gosh, this guy's awful. He sure looks good though. Here's the thing. There are also people with incredible, beautiful souls that have scarred or deformed bodies. If God made everything right, every person with a ugly soul would have an ugly body and every person with a beautiful soul would have a beautiful 
body. And that's one of the things he's doing. And just this little microcosm, he's just saying, no, I think I'll just make things right. Make them look like they need to look. The Bible says one day he's going to set everything right. He says, I'm going to rewrite the whole story. I'm going to make things new. He's showing the world what's inside of each of these men. But I want to close out by taking a brief look at the, the, the real heroine, the hero of, of this story. She's mentioned right at the beginning, and, and it's so easy to just gloss over it, but that's why I added those extra verses. I'll read them to you again. At this time, Syrian or Aramean raiders had invaded the land of Israel, and among their captives was a young girl who had been given to Naaman's wife as a maid. One day the girl said to her mistress, I wish my master would go to see the prophet in Samaria. He would heal him of his leprosy. Well, who is this little servant? The word in Hebrew for girl, it means pre-adolescent. So she's probably nine, 10, maybe 11. And what does it say about her? It says that she was captured by the Syrian raiders that had come in and they would raid some of the cities of Israel and they would take captives go back and sell them as slaves. And she'd been sold as a slave to Naaman's wife. Well, who's responsible for all this happening to her? The Syrian army. Surely every night on her little cot, she thought about everything she had lost. Maybe her parents were killed. Maybe her siblings were sold into slavery, slavery too. And Who was responsible for all that? The Syrians. And who's the head of the Syrian army? I'm living in his house. How would you respond to it? And this is kind of the key to the entire passage. She says, if only the master would go see the prophet in Samaria, he would heal him. There's compassion in her words, even a longing for healing. Would you call it love? How can this be? I mean, she offered the most costly forgiveness. There are things that are easy to forgive because they don't cost us very much. But how costly would it be to forgive something like this? See, her options were plain. She could have said, I hope that guy dies a horrible, disfiguring death and I'm going to watch it. She could have just been silent. She didn't have to say anything. And she could have had her revenge or she could forgive at great cost and Naaman would live. His life was in her hands, but she forgives him and loves him at great cost to herself. But don't miss the bigger point. You see, there's a a suffering servant who paid the price for our salvation. All through the Old Testament, we'll see these different stories that, that, that talk about a suffering servant. But they're always pointing towards something in the New Testament, the life of Jesus. See, there was a, a, a servant who forgave us at great cost. The supreme suffering servant that this little girl, is her life is pointing to. He was separated from his father. He came to earth in spite of what that meant. Can you imagine leaving the throne of heaven 
where everything is perfect and everyone obeys every word and coming down here to this rebellious planet. And we didn't like him very much. He's a little too perfect for our taste. Couldn't say I'm better than him, so it really bugged us, the religious ones. And so we killed him. We spit on him. We rejected him. I remember when Laura and I first went as missionaries to Mexico City. We'd been in Costa Rica for about a year, and we learned Spanish. We were fairly fluent. We got there, and I thought, man, these people are going to be so happy to see me. Didn't quite work out that way. They were going, oh, my God, another gringo, right? And then I thought, went to the churches, and I thought, well, the churches will be happy to see me. And they went, oh, another missionary. Oh, my gosh, you know, come to mess everything up. And I got really mad. I mean, I actually almost got to the point where I go, well, I hope there's no Mexicans in heaven because that's going to mess the whole place up. And I had come to serve them, to be with them. Now, it's funny because I've come to love the Mexican people so much and have such a passion for them. But they didn't accept me. They rejected me. And, and I was upset. God, what have I given my whole life up for? I was, I was preaching at this big church and, and, and things were looking great and I just felt like you called me here. And, and it's almost like Jesus said, welcome to the club, son. Right? You got a tiny taste of what I've got. Just a tiny taste. Not very much of a taste, I guarantee you. Because they didn't try to spit on me and crucify me. That's the thing. Can't imagine the pain of separation from his father and then rejected by us, crucified by us. But remember what he said from the cross? Father, forgive them. For they don't know. They don't even know what they're doing and because he was willing to bear our punishment and not take revenge he gave us life our life was in his hands and at great cost he forgave us he decided to bear the pain and the cost and he forgives us you and I can know God if we receive his word and his sacrifice you see I have people all the time. It's American way. You know, Mark, I think there are many ways to God. And that sounds sweet. And sometimes I even kind of wish that was right. It'd be just, you know, don't have to worry about saying anything to anybody. But here's the truth. In our membership class that's going on right now and in one of the other rooms, they're talking about how to know Jesus and one of the things they're saying is there's only one way. And I'll have people a lot of times leave that class and go, well, y'all are too narrow for my taste. Say there's only one way to God. But you see, we have to understand God loves you. I don't know why he would love us. We're rebellious. We've shaken our fist in his face so many times and said, I'll just do my own way, my own thing. And we've, But still he loves us and he knows that little girl... There's no way she's ever going to get to me. That little boy, he could never get to me. You would have to be perfect. You've already messed up. You'd have to have no sin in your life at all. doesn't matter if you're better than somebody else. 
We've all fallen short of the glory of God, the Bible says. And so God, in his great mercy, tore his heart out. That was Jesus. He calls him his only begotten son. He's God himself, three in one. And he came down and he, at great cost to himself, opened the way. That's what the cross was. He came to show us the way, but then he opened the way. And the Bible says really clearly in John's gospel, to all who received him and what he's done for us, God gave them the right to become children of God. Wow, that's huge. You know, I was thinking about it. Some of us that are trying to earn our way to God and, you know, be do these good things. I mean, really, can you really do good things for God? I mean, is God really impressed? Well, that was impressive. You could give billions of dollars away. If you're Bill Gates or, or, or Warren Buffett or someone, and you, let's say you gave $100 billion away, is God going to say that's impressive? I remember when my son David was about three, and he'd have to sit in my services sometimes because it just depended on where I was. If I was out speaking somewhere, not always had a nursery. and so He was bored, you know. And he would draw pictures of me preaching. And it was about that time when, you know, they go through that developmental stage where they just draw a giant big head and then two arms where the ears are. You know, it's just a head and arms coming out by the ears and chicken feet, you know. And he would come up so proudly afterwards and he would show me that. And what if I looked at that and went, that's pathetic. That is, that's pathetic. I mean, <laughs> I am not just a big head. Well, some people might disagree, but, you know, that's not what I did. What did I do? I'd go, oh, David, I can tell you, listen to the message. Um, that's, that, that's so good. Look at that. Look at that, Laura. It looks just like me. She really does, you know. <laughs> Why? Because he's my little boy, and anything he did for me was precious to me. The great God of the universe he snaps his fingers and messengers of fire move at the speed of light and bow before him and say, yes, sir, what can we do? He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. But he wants us in his family. Now, I can't explain it. I can't tell you why. If I was God, I would have zapped you into dirt a long time ago. But that's the thing. Thank God you're not God and I'm not God. We've been trying to be God for people. He says, I am the only God. You can never reach me. But I will bend down in great cost to myself. And I will open a way. Well, if he's done that, why would we think there's many ways? At great cost to himself, he opened the way. There's only one way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But whosoever will may come. You don't have to have money. You don't have to be good. He just loves you. I want you to close your eyes with me for a minute. Do you hear him? He's saying, little girl. 
I see you. I know. I see the failures. I see the heartaches. I see the relationships that didn't pan out. I see all those men that weren't what they should have been in your life. I see all of that, but I am not that. I love you unconditionally. I've opened a way for you. Receive what I've done for you. Become my little girl. I want you to be my little girl. And some of you guys, you're going like, man, I've been on this treadmill. I've been trying to be worth something. My dad said I'd never be worth anything, but I'm going to prove him wrong. And God's going like, you don't have to do that anymore. Little son, I love you. I see you. I know you can never measure up. I see you fall down every other day. But I still love you and I want you in my family. Step in to what I've done for you. Step into what Jesus did on the cross for you. Step into baptism next week. Even though you don't understand it, let me be in charge. There's one way. Come to me, all who are weary, worn out, tired. I am the way. I will give you rest. Maybe you're a believer here and you've been, you knew you, it was all a gift and you received it, but now you've been trying to earn it again somehow. I'm going to earn it. I'm going to be a good Christian. I'm going to, that's not how you earn it. Walk with him. Spend time with him in his word. Let him be the center of your life. Let him just love on you. He even said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Let him serve you. This God of the universe is ready to serve you. He kneels before you. He looks into your eyes and he says, I love you, little son of mine. I love you, little girl. Step into my way, the only way. Your whole world will begin to change. Come, kingdom of God, upon us. Be done, will of God, in us, through us, over us, around us. Let nothing stop what you have in mind for each and every person within the sound of my voice. In Jesus' name, amen.